Well, it's a joy to gather with you, and it's a joy to open the Word of God together. So if you have your Bible, please turn to the very end of Second Chronicles, or if you want to think about it differently, you can turn to Ezra and then turn back one page, if that makes it easier to try to find it. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one, maybe one, maybe even two, in the back of one of the chairs in the row in front of you. And if you're using one of those Bibles, um, our text is on page 388 this morning. So the very end of Second Chronicles will be Second Chronicles chapter 36. If you're a guest with us, let me add my welcome to you. We're so glad that you are with us today and hope that you will be blessed, that you already have been blessed as we have sung the Lord's praise and heard the Word of God read and poured out our hearts to Him in prayer, and that you'll continue to be blessed as we look into God's Word together. You're catching us near the end of a summer series. The kids are about to go back to school. Everybody's thrilled, right? Okay, so let's do, we need a show of hands because the voice vote obviously didn't work. So we need, um, how many of you are happy this is kids' vote. We'll do the adult vote in a minute. How many kids are happy that school's starting soon? Okay, one, two, three. Hey, you must be doing a good job. All right. And Sam, good. Kara, okay. Two Franks, great. That's 100% participation there for the ones that are school age. That's good. Yes, I, I saw those hands. All right, and how many of you are like, making a face like Rachel was just making. How, how many of you are like, school, oh, what are we doing? This is nuts. Wait a minute, three of my four kids are raising their hands. This is a problem. Jesse, you got a little work to do, it looks like, too. Amelia's just being contrary, I think. She loves it. All right, you can put your hands down. How many parents are happy that school's starting in about a week? My hands are up. Okay, anybody else? Nobody? Jesse's hands are up. Great. No, you just love the summers with them and just can't. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad. That's, that was from a mom of four. Jenny says, I just love having them at home. I don't want to give them up for school. So that's good. That's good. So school's starting soon. So if you're a guest with us, you've caught us at the end. We do have kids. We have a lot of kids in here. Um, and we're really excited that they're in here. So there's sometimes if I explain things that you're like, everyone knows that it's for the kids. And I'll try to remember to say that it's for that. Um, and we are near the end of a sermon series this summer where we are taking a walk through the historical books of the Old Testament. Last summer, we did a series in the Pentateuch, seeing how the Pentateuch points us to Jesus, those first five books of the Bible. And this summer, we're taking kind of the next chunk, the rest of Israel's history, all the way from on the brink of the promised land, all the way through the times of the judges, and then the kings, and then the divided monarchy when it turned into two countries who were actually against each other quite a bit, and then both of them are taken into captivity, and then Judah returns from the exile. So we're going all the way through that, hundreds of years this summer, and we've gotten pretty much to the end. There are only a few books left, so the next few weeks we'll be finishing up. But this week we're looking at the book of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles. And so that's where our scripture reading will be, and we'll be talking more about it in just a moment. But the scripture reading will be from 2 Chronicles 36, verse 11 through 23. And Walt Grumpt is going to come and read the scripture for us this morning. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. 
and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men and swore and <coughs> young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hands and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all those he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. that in wrath you remember mercy, that even in judgment and exile you brought your people home. And so would you help us today to see what you would want us to see from Second Chronicles and for us to understand its message and to heed its warnings and would we trust you would we look to you? And so we look to you even now. Holy Spirit, would you come and teach us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you change us by your power into the people that you want us to be for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, Second Chronicles, of course, comes after First Chronicles, right? All the kids got that one. They, they knew that. I could see Owen was, like, thinking hard about it, right? Almost. By way of reminder for those who were here last week, Chronicles is really one book. Originally, that's what it was meant to be. One book that, for just the sake of how long it is, um, was broken up into two because it wouldn't fit on one scroll. Just like the Samuels and the Kings, this was really one book telling one big story of what God is doing through his people. And again, by way of reminder from last week, Chronicles covers the same time frame as 2 Samuel through the end of 2 Kings. So that's one of the reasons that we won't be taking just a straight through like this king lived and then that king and then that king and then that king because we've already been there. Um, but we want to see what the chronicler focuses on differently than the author of the kings. And we said last week that he's doing that. How we know that is because he's writing to a different 
audience. He's writing to these people after the proclamation of Cyrus. He's writing to people who have returned. They know they are the people of the Lord. You of his people, let him go up. And they, are, they have gone up now to God's place, to Jerusalem, and they've been told to rebuild the temple And so last week we saw that God's plan was for God's people to live in God's place according to God's promise for God's glory. He's writing to those people who've recently returned from exile and they needed to know, like we do, the answers to some of life's big questions. They needed to know who they are. They needed to know how they got here. Why are we in this place and why is it like this? They needed to know where this is all going. Is what it's, gonna, what it's like today, is that the way it will always be? Or is there a different story? They needed to know where it's all going. And when they knew, have all that, they can know what they need to do now. And so as the chronicler considers the kings of Judah, because again, he's focusing on the people who are coming back. So we won't find much at all about the kings of Israel except for where their lives kind of intersect with the kings of Judah, which they do at certain points. They need to know what to do, but in this book there's a whole lot more of what not to do. Uh, We're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that the things that were written down from of old were written for examples to us. And even there, when you think about the children of Israel in the wilderness, it's, it's not so much like, do it like they did, do it like they did, do it like he did, right? It's like, don't do that. Don't be idolaters. That's the conclusion in 1 Corinthians 10. And that's one that could fit very well for us over Second Chronicles. Don't be idolaters. There's sin here. Idolatry. Oppression that ultimately leads to judgment. But in judgment, there is mercy. The psalmist prayed, in wrath, remember mercy. And that is exactly what God does. So the big idea this morning from Second Chronicles is this. So kids, this is where you get your pencils out. God grants mercy to those who humbly turn from their sin and trust in him. God grants mercy to those who humbly turn from their sin and trust in him. And of course, we know from where we are now in the story, the history of redemption, that that mercy comes to us through our perfect king. So we'll see a lot of content about the worship of God and the not worship of not gods. But then find that there is mercy in the midst of judgment. That there is hope even for those in the depths of despair. Because God grants mercy to those who humbly turn from their sin and trust in him. So... What happens in the book of 2 Chronicles? I already said we're not going to do just a straight through, but I want to give some hooks to hang things on and then some examples. So remember, it's originally one book. The chronicler recognizes regularly when he's describing the reign of a king, he recognizes that other people have written about this. Like he's aware of First and Second Kings. He's aware of some other books that have been written about Israel's history and So because he's aware of that, he doesn't feel the burden to tell everything about everyone. You remember, most of the cool stuff about David was missing from 1 Chronicles. It's why all the stories you know about him are from uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and not so much from Chronicles, because in Chronicles, the focus is not on all the heroic things or even the bad things that the kings did necessarily as much as how they related to God and his temple. So for David, we saw that he made, even though he wasn't allowed to build the temple, he made preparations and there's significant chunk of first chronicles that's all about preparations for the temple because it mattered. And so the chronicler is going to continue that 
theme. So it's not meant to be a complete history of David, of Solomon, or of anyone. It's really a theological history. How did these kings relate to God as they related to him through the house of God and the worship of God? So he's aware that other people are going to fill in the gaps. Like in here, he makes one mention of Elijah. He says that there was a letter that was written, and he quotes the letter, and he says it was written by Elijah. But there's no mention of Elijah at all. So he, he's relying on our knowledge of first and a little bit into second kings of who Elijah was, when he was around, what he would have been doing, how he would have said things. He just makes a quick reference to him in chapter 21. And then there's a simple statement of Hezekiah's pride in chapter 32 without telling the full story of what that meant and what he did that was so wrong and how he showed his pride. It just says he was proud. And then he humbled himself. And you're like, there's got to be more. And there is. And you can look at your cross-references and find it in 2 Kings. So, kind of big picture, what is going on in 2 Chronicles? It's continuing the story from 1 Chronicles. It's not trying to tell the whole story. It's trying to tell a particular story so that the readers would benefit from it in a particular way. So you remember 1 Chronicles opened with the long genealogies, and then it had the death of Saul, and then the reign of David, with a particular focus on the preparations for building the temple. 2 Chronicles continues that story, beginning with the life and the reign of Solomon. So what happens in the book of 2 Chronicles? First, it's Solomon. He's the king from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 9. And again, Solomon is a very interesting guy, did a lot of interesting things. Most of those things are not in 2 Chronicles. They're in 1 Kings. So there's not a lot of personal stories about him just like there wasn't about his father. Like we know from kings about how Solomon's heart was turned away because of his wives. But there's no mention of that here. It's not because the chronicler is trying to cover up the sins of Judah's kings. In fact, he's going to tell us pretty much all about them. And it'd be impossible to tell the story of Judah without telling the sins of Judah's king. And he's not trying to show us how great the kings are, any of them. His focus, again, is on the temple and on the worship of God that took place there. And we see that even in how the stories about Solomon play out. So there's his famous prayer for wisdom when God tells him you can ask for anything. And he says, I want wisdom. And God says, because you've asked for wisdom, you will get it and you will get wealth and honor as well. That's in chapter 1. And then chapters 2 through 9 it's pretty much about the temple. It begins preparations for building the temple in chapter 2. Then they're actually building the temple in chapter 3. They're furnishing the temple, putting everything in the temple in chapter 4. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant that we talked about a lot last week, place of God's presence, into the temple in chapter 5. It's, the temple is dedicated in chapters 6 and 7. And then chapter 8 lists some other of Solomon's accomplishments. Chapter 9 is the story of the Queen of Sheba coming and seeing Solomon's wisdom. And then comments about his wealth and then his death. So again, it's not trying to tell like this whole story of Solomon. It's telling about God's place and the worship of him. So Solomon is chapters 1 through 9. And then chapters 10 through 36 is really the rest of the story the kings of Judah after Solomon. There are 19 of them, which is one of the reasons that we're not going to spend five minutes on each because the sermon will already be long enough and I had to just put all those notes in, a, in another file. But let me just say, even talking about that, I, I wish that we could do that. I mean, we can create another setting where we can do that because it's fascinating. So let me commend again to you as I've been kind of commending all summer. Read this stuff for yourselves, right? Don't just rely on, well, they're giving us summaries on Sundays, and we, we want to do a faithful job of that and have you feel the weight of it and respond appropriately, but the best way for you to engage with this is for you to engage with it yourself and read these stories, see them, as, and as I was getting to do that this week with Second Chronicles, like, oh, 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 and it's just, man, I love this book, not just Second Chronicles, right? I love this book. 
and what it reveals to us about who God is and how he deals with us, his people. And you can find that in a book that at first would seem, uh, I don't know, it's just going to be a bunch of names and I'm not sure. In 2 Chronicles, you can see God and his heart for his people. So there were 19 kings. I commend the reading of 2 Chronicles to you for your own seeing their struggles and how God responded to each one of them. They weren't very good. There's eight of them that we could pretty much call good, and as we'll see, even the good ones weren't actually good. Um, And then there's 11 of them that they're just straight up bad. Um, So there's 19 kings, and this is until the exile, and then the proclamation of Cyrus, which is right at the end, which happens in chapter 36. Now, how did we decide whether they were good or bad? Well, we have lots of strong hints about each one of them, and the chronicler's criteria we're different from how people tend to evaluate kings. Like when, when we think about how we evaluate presidents, right? We might ask questions like, did he keep us out of war? That's what Woodrow Wilson ran on in 1916. It's like, I kept him out of the war, which, and of course, he didn't stay out of war. And so then they'd ask another question. If he couldn't keep us out of war, did he win it? Right? Because if we won, then we at least feel better about it, even if we spend a lot of money and we're going to have to figure out how to pay it back. And then if there was war and we did win, did he expand our territory, right? Did our empire grow? This, especially in the ancient world, but even down to the modern world, I mean, even this week, it's right, should we buy Greenland? Perhaps. I'm, I'm, I don't know. That's not my area of expertise, the, the main thing I know about it is that Greenland is covered with ice, and Iceland is very nice. <laughs> so did he expand our territory? Or we might ask more personal questions, right? Like, do I feel safe and represented? And does the president, in our case, help with that? Or maybe, and this is the one that actually becomes kind of the one, not ring to rule them all, but one facet. (laughs) How is the economy, right? If you've been alive for a certain amount of time, you're familiar with the phrase, it's the economy, stupid. And as I'm looking around, there's actually probably a bunch of you that don't remember the 1992 election between Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush but that just means that I'm getting old, and that's okay. How's the economy? Do I feel like I am personally able to live the American dream? That is actually how at least the swing voters that decide elections end up voting. Generally, if things are going well, the same party gets reelected no matter who is at the top of the ticket. And if it's not going well, then obviously we need a change. And that's how things work. That's how we tend to evaluate our leaders. That's not how the chronicler evaluates the leaders. And maybe the people of Israel would have, would have you know, did our borders expand? Did things go well for me? This was a good king or a bad king. But the chronicler has a different set of criteria. His evaluation is actually very simple. It's based on how the king related to God through how he related to God's temple. Now, that would play itself out in a million ways in a king's life, but that is what the chronicler is concerned about. For example, you'd have one king who would tear down the altars to false gods and his son would build them again. You'd have one king that would close up the doors of the temple and stop the worship of the Lord and then build altars to false gods everywhere, and then his son would come along and open the doors to the temple and start back up the worship of the Lord. That's what happened in Second Chronicles 28. And then 29 and following, Ahaz, who was one of those evil kings, 
shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, built altars to gods all over the place. Hezekiah, his son, one of the good kings, comes behind him and opens the doors, repairs them. In fact, he does more than that. We're told he cleansed the temple, reestablished temple worship, celebrated the Passover for the first time in generations, organized the priests, sought the Lord when he was threatened by an invading army, the army of Sennacherib, and that he prayed for his life to be lengthened when he was ill and at the point of death, and the Lord granted his prayer. You go, whoa, this is, okay, this is a good king. And so often, the chronicler includes, after some examples, he includes a brief summary to go with that story or perhaps two. So with Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29.2, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And there was a particular measuring stick, according to all that David, his father, had done. You'll find that consistently with these brief, like he was good. If it's he was good and did right in the sight of the Lord, there's usually a reference to David or a reference to a father or grandfather who had reestablished temple worship. For example, Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 17, 3 and 4. He's another of the good kings. says, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. So the practices of Judah walking in the footsteps of the father David, that is often contrasted with walking the ways of Israel or the ways of the people who were in the land before them. So on the negative side, you have one like Rehoboam, who was the first king of Judah in the divided monarchy. Second Chronicles 12, 14 simply says, he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And so there's these summaries pretty much for each one. He did right in the sight of the Lord, Sometimes it'll add, but not with a whole heart, because he didn't take away certain altars, even though he did worship the Lord. And then there are many that it's, and he did evil. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. So that's kind of what's going on. You have Solomon, chapters 1 through 9, and then all the rest. These 19 kings, 8 of them good, 11 of them bad, till finally God has had it. And that was what Walt read for us at the beginning today. The very last king, Zedekiah, his rebellion. But then it has that really helpful summary. It starts with what he did, right? He did what was evil, verse 12, in the sight of the Lord is God. What did that look like? He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. And it's not just the kings, right? Verse 14, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Then you see messengers, prophets being sent to them. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So that's the picture these few verses provide a really good summary of what you'll find in 2 Chronicles. So what is the message of 2 Chronicles? So we've looked at kind of the, the facts, like here's the main people that are covered. The message of 2 Chronicles, it's a message about sin, about judgment, and about hope. Let's look first at sin. We see even in what we've just read, they didn't keep the law. They didn't humble themselves. They were unfaithful. And that's going to work itself out in our lives, again, in myriad ways, in how we worship, but also in how we live, how we treat other people. It's about our heart 
toward God. So even back to that very first one, King Rehoboam, 2 Chronicles 12.1 tells us when the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Now this was warned against in the law. It was also warned against by Solomon and in God's response at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 6 and 7. And here you have his own son, the very next king who abandoned the law of the Lord. And we still do this today. When we feel strong in ourselves and think we've gained our own standing by our own might, our own doing, everything's good, I'm comfortable, I have a good income, my place where I live is nice, my city's good, everything's good, I'm good. That's when we tend to go our own way. And there were multiple kings that would have a pattern like this. When they were strong, when they became wealthy, when their kingdom was established, their heart was lifted up with pride. We need an ongoing sense, just like they needed, of dependence on God. That we need Him for life and breath and everything. Like we confess that on Sundays. It's obvious, right? We, we, we need Him. But through the week, if we looked at our lives, like do we need Him? And we do. But do we think we do? Do we act like we do? And this idolatry... Is trusting ourselves instead of the Lord will often lead to injustice. Asa, he's one of the eight that's good. Okay, He's one of the few good kings of Judah. He's covered in chapters 14 through 16. In his old age, he stopped relying on the Lord. Whether it was in battles as a nation, even though he had done that earlier, earlier when he faced trouble, he prayed. And then later when he faced trouble, he reached out to someone who shouldn't have been an ally, and to a bigger country, to Syria, and said, hey, can you help me with my problem? We're told that he did not seek the Lord, whether it was in battle or then when he got a disease. It says he became diseased in his feet, and instead of trusting the Lord, instead of praying, he went to the doctors for help. Now, let me just clarify, in case anybody wants to make like a really big jump from there. doesn't mean you don't go to the doctor, okay? Go to the doctor. The Lord can work through doctors and nurses, Probably nurses better than doctors a lot of the time, right? <laughs> God can work through doctors. Sorry, Claire. <laughs> we got our like, the nurses know the stuff, the doctors do the surgery. When you think even in our church history in the last couple of months with Jonathan DeHart, right? With the cancer diagnosis, we prayed they, they came to the church, they obeyed James 5, and we as the church prayed for them. We anointed him with oil in one of our Sunday morning gatherings and asked God to heal him and asked God to open up a quick date for surgery if that was how God intended to heal him. And God seemingly didn't answer our initial prayer, but he did answer the prayer for a as early as possible surgery. And then he answered the prayer for a successful surgery. And his outlook is really good. So we don't want to hear, you know, Asa didn't seek the Lord. He went to the doctors instead and go, yeah, see those doctors? I knew they don't know anything. It's like, not what we're saying and not what Second Chronicles is saying. It's about our hearts. It's about our hearts. Who do we trust? Where do we turn when we feel like things are going wrong? And then it gets even worse. It's not just that, well, he stopped trusting the Lord in his old age. The Lord, 
as we saw in 2 Chronicles 36, with faithfully sending messengers, but they mocked them. Here's one of those examples. One of the good kings, when he was confronted, here's how he responded. 2 Chronicles 16.10, Then Asa was angry with the seer, or with the prophet, and put him in stocks in prison. For he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties on some of the people at the same time. Do you see how his idolatry, his lack of, the trust, of trust in the Lord, is, becomes not just about him? The Lord graciously sends someone to confront him, and he's like, nah, I don't want that. You're in trouble for doing this. You're going to prison. And then at that same time, as his heart was turned away from the Lord, he's oppressing his people, who aren't really his people. They're God's people. They don't belong to him. They belong to the Lord. And he's oppressing God's people because of his idolatry. This idolatry works itself out in injustice. Or another one, Jehoram. He's one of the bad kings, like beginning to end, bad. He's a son of Jehoshaphat, who was a good king. And as soon as he became the king, because he was the oldest son, he killed all his brothers. This is the way of the world in trying to consolidate power, not the way of God's people. He walked in the way, we're told, of the kings of Israel, like Ahab. And he did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. So there is sin, and it's ugly. It's idolatry, which leads to injustice and ultimately to God's judgment. So we see sin, but then we see judgment. That's what we saw at the very end of 2 Chronicles in chapter 36, which we read. Sometimes the judgment was immediate and direct. So with Jehoram, the one that we were just talking about, the Lord allowed him to lose control of parts of his kingdom, to lose a battle that resulted in most of his family being carried off in exile to another country, except for the youngest son, who would later become the king. And then the Lord struck him with an incurable disease, it tells us, of his bowels. And he had that disease for two years, and he died in great agony. And here's the summary of his life. 2 Chronicles 21:20. He was 32 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 8 years in Jerusalem and he departed with no one's regret. Oh man. He departed with no one's regret. Not one person said, "Oh man, I'm sad that he's gone." And it wasn't even just that they didn't notice like in the emperor's new groove. Yeah, no one seems to notice that he's gone. It's not even that. It's that everyone's... Okay, let's move on. No one's sad. There's no regret for his suffering, for his pain, for his death. Another one, Ahaziah, who faced judgment quickly. We're told in 2 Chronicles 22, he did evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. For after the death of his father, they, the house of Ahab, were his counselors to his undoing. And then he went to visit a wounded relative of his who was the king of Israel. And while he's visiting him, Jehu comes and kills them both. This is one who he had done evil, and immediately he faced judgment. Others went on for a long time, but ultimately the nation itself faced God's judgment. Sometimes it was immediate and direct, but ultimately it came, and it was final. From verse 16 of chapter 36. They did all these things until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So there's sin, there's judgment, but that's not the end of the story. In 2 Chronicles, there's also a story 
of hope, which is good because we've been doing a whole lot of like sin and bad from like First Kings through Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel even had a lot of that too, and it's kind of like, huh, right? But in the midst of judgment, in the midst of wrath, there is mercy and there is hope. So first, there's hope because of the way the story ends. It doesn't end with Jerusalem was destroyed, everyone in the exile, end of story. It ends with the proclamation of Cyrus, which Walt read with us, where he said, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kings of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So it doesn't end with despair. It ends with hope. We're getting support to go and rebuild the temple, the place where God dwells, and to rebuild the city where God had said he would put his name. He says, you who are of his people, go up. So for these people, there would be hope because of how the story ends. God still has a plan for his people. So there's hope on the macro level because God's not done with his people yet, but then there's also hope on the micro level because there are a few stories that highlight humility and repentance. We're told that in general they did not humble themselves, and we've already seen examples of a couple, and they didn't humble themselves. They didn't turn. They hardened their heart against turning from the Lord. But perhaps the most notable example of humility and repentance in all of Second Chronicles is the one who is described as having done the worst. He did more evil than anyone before him, and his name was Manasseh. His story is told in chapter 33 of Second Chronicles. He was the worst. And the Lord sent difficulty. The Lord sent someone to speak to him. And when that distress came on him, he humbled himself before the Lord. He does the exact opposite of what we would expect. And his little one-line story is he was evil. He did evil. But he humbled himself. He repented. He turned. He said, Lord, you are, you are God. And he tore down altars to false gods and worshipped the Lord. It's a stunning turn. But the Lord is the one who has compassion on him. And the Lord gives him mercy. He responded with humility and with repentance and received mercy. Another example of it, not as stark because he was one of the good kings, but King Josiah, which is in chapter 34. There's a prophecy that's given, a prophecy of disaster. And Josiah responds with humility, with repentance, with, okay, let's proclaim a national fast. Let's seek the Lord. Let's look to Him. And that disaster was delayed. Now, it would come a couple generations later as the kings following Josiah hardened themselves against the Lord and didn't listen and mocked God's prophets. But the Lord saw Josiah's humility Josiah's repentance and said, this disaster that was predicted, it will be delayed. We're told of Josiah that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, that he walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. He responded with humility and repentance to the law of the Lord. And the disaster was delayed. So there's sin, there's judgment, but there is hope. And ultimately, our hope is in Jesus. So let's look at 2 Chronicles and Jesus. Jesus is the perfect king. Jesus is the perfect king. We've been highlighting this now for several messages as we've been walking through Israel's history. But even the good kings blew it. 
big time. So Jehoshaphat, he's one of the good kings, right? He ended up trusting in his own plans, even after seeing some plans fail previously. He made an, a marriage alliance with Ahab. Like, you know who Ahab is, right? He's like the worst. And they come up with this idea, Jehoshaphat, we should, you know, get this done. And so Ahab's daughter marries Jehoshaphat's son, and that ends up being tragic for Judah and for Jerusalem. Here's a good king who got in trouble for aligning himself with people who didn't follow the Lord. He also made an alliance with Ahaziah, who was Ahab's son in chapter 20. And this wreaked havoc on the royal family for generations. Because remember the guy who killed all his brothers? Guess who his wife was? Ahab's daughter. And then after he died, guess what she did? She killed all the family that she could. Her name was Athaliah. If you grew up learning the history of Judah, it's like that's like the, the bad name. Like Jezebel's the bad name on Israel's side. The bad name on Judah's side is Athaliah. She's Jezebel's daughter. And she actually rules for a little while after she's killed everyone. She thinks. But then there's one, the, the boy king, Joash, who was hidden until he was eight years old. And then he became king. Even the good kings failed in spectacular ways that set up problems for generations. Hezekiah failed. He was proud, though he later humbled himself. Uzziah, same thing. He had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but when he was strong, 2 Chronicles 26, 16, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord. So even where we have good kings, like, he's a good one. He did the right things. He did wrong things. And he blew it in significant ways. And so there's a way in which even the good kings, there's this longing, this ache for the king who will come, who will get it right. They were still awaiting the true king who would always obey, who would always rule in righteousness. So even the good kings, we don't look at them and hold them up and be like, yeah, this is what we're supposed to do. This is how it works. No, Jesus is the only one who is worthy of our worship. And he's the only one who is worthy of our complete trust. Jesus is the perfect king and Jesus delivers us from disaster through his death and resurrection. Jesus delivers us from disaster through his death and resurrection. So in Chronicles, remember the disaster was delayed when the king humbled himself and repented. But on the cross, Jesus himself took our disaster. It's not just delayed. It's not just, oh, you won't see it in your time. It won't come at all. So now, everyone who humbles himself, who realizes, like Manasseh and like Josiah, that they have broken God's law and that they rightfully deserve God's wrath and God's judgment, and who stop trusting themselves and their own goodness and instead trust in the work of Christ, believing that his righteousness counts for us and that our sins were placed on him when he was on the cross. That person who trusts in Christ will never see God's wrath. All that person will know is mercy. Because Jesus delivers us, not just delaying it, but he delivers us from disaster through his death and resurrection. So, 2 Chronicles and us. So we sin, judgment, hope. Because of Jesus, how does this work for us? Well, we must repent and believe. This was a sign of God's compassion to them 
And it's a sign of God's compassion to us, just as it was for them. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We must turn. Amon was one of those bad kings. We're told he did not humble himself before the Lord. He was the son of Manasseh, the one who humbled himself and came around. It says he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more. But God keeps sending messengers and he sends them to us like what Isaiah says in chapter 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The message to the people of God that was sent out by messengers from the king in chapter 30 is this, the Lord is gracious. Return to him. Jesus, when he was on the earth, warned us of the coming judgment, and he tells us how to escape it. We will avoid God's wrath if we repent and take refuge in Jesus. And if you're still living, it's not too late. It's not too late to turn from your sins and trust in him because God grants mercy to those who humbly turn from their sin and trust in him. So we must repent and believe, but we must also, as God's people, call others to repent and believe. God sent, in the midst of a wicked, faithless people, God kept sending messengers. He kept sending prophets. They were signs of God's compassion. And who is called to be the signs of God's compassion in a dark and faithless world today? It's us. You think, well, they had a special calling. Well, we've sort of been given like this commission thing. I don't know if you've heard of it. God has given us the Great Commission. Jesus himself told us to carry this good news to the end of the earth. Now, if we do that, we need to remember that our fate might be very similar to the prophets and the messengers who were sent in Second Chronicles. And so we must count little how things appear now where people try to tell you there's, there's no place anymore in a tolerant society for faith in Jesus. We must count little how things appear now. Following the ways of the Lord may be unfashionable. It may be out of favor. You may be accused of being out of touch on the wrong side of history. You may be accused on the other side of being a bleeding heart who cares too much and needs to understand the importance of strong borders. Our job is not to please the left or the right. We need not bow to political power wherever it comes from, no matter which party seems to be in charge at the moment. We don't need to figure out, okay, how can we align ourselves so we'll be okay? You know why we'll be okay? Because Jesus bled and died for us. Our aim is to please the one who created us and gave his life for us. He died for us so that we might not live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. The prophets were considered weak. They were ignored. They were backward. They were strange. They cared about things. They're like, why should that be a big deal? Like justice for the people who were being oppressed. And God kept sending them. Second Chronicles 24, 19, Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. We are called to fulfill a similar role today. Calling people to the Lord. In one particularly egregious example, Joash, that boy king 
who became king when he was eight, were told that he did right. And the stories I learned in Sunday school growing up was all about the good things that he did. And it's like, see, you can be like that. You know, when you're in like third and fourth grade Sunday school, it's like, he's my age. That's kind of cool, right? And so he was eight when he became king. He was a good king, we think. We're told in 2 Chronicles 24, 2, that Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. He had an influence on his life. He had a mentor who was kind of like a regent because when you're eight, you're still probably not ready to run a country. And he did what was right in the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada lived all the way into Joash's adulthood. And so there's a long list of the reforms that Joash made under Jehoiada's tutelage. And he seemed to be going great. And then Jehoiada dies. After the death of Joash's mentor, his heart was turned away to follow idols. And when he rebuked Jehoiada's son is the messenger sent from the Lord, speaking words from the mouth of the Lord. This is the son of his mentor, one he would probably have grown up with. Now they're adults, and Joash says, not for me. Jehoiada's son says, you must follow the Lord. And Joash responds by making sure that Zechariah, Jehoiada's son, is stoned to death. It's not just like you lose your place in the court. You lose your life. We are called to call others to repent and believe. But as we do so, we must keep our eyes on the Lord. It's the awareness that we've been commissioned by Christ himself that compels us to spread the good news about Jesus, even at personal cost. But we must do it with our eyes on the Lord. So this Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, who died by stoning, as he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. Joash, you're doing what is wrong. May the Lord see what is happening here and avenge. And he did. It's relatively soon after that that Joash is conspired against and killed by his own people. But when Jesus died on the cross, did he say the Lord see and avenge? He said, Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. And we say, well, that was Jesus. We don't really have to do that. I'll give you Stephen. As he was dying in Acts, as he was being stoned for preaching and telling the people of Israel in that day, you're being like the old ones who stiffen their necks and harden their hearts. And they become enraged at him and they stone him. And as he is dying, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so even as we face persecution, we face it on the other side of the cross. We don't need to say, avenge. We can say, Lord, please forgive them. Please do not hold this sin against them. Do we want others to pay for their sins against us or do we long for the same mercy we have been shown to be shown to them? The mercy that we so love and appreciate and sing about and celebrate and receive so freely through Jesus. We must keep our eyes on the Lord because we ourselves will be tempted whether it's seeking vengeance or whether it's toward idolatry. Like these kings, they, you could tell it because it was obvious by they were setting up altars. We, we don't do exactly the same thing today. But even as believers, we will be tempted, right? What's an idol? Anything or anyone that takes the place of God. And nothing can bear this weight. 
In their days, the false gods were made of wood and stone. Those certainly couldn't. But idols are the things you trust when you're in trouble. They're the things you turn to when things important to you are being threatened. That's how you know. Because it's easy for us to just brush it off, right? Idols, I don't, I don't do that. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, none of us do, right? But they're what we turn to when important things are being threatened. So whether it's food or drink or games or phones, any other distractions, anything to take my mind off my problems or dull the pain. I don't want to think about this, and this is where I'm at home. This is where everything's okay. As long as I have this, everything will be fine. See, there were some who, when they faced distress, they became hardened in their unbelief and in their rebellion, like Ahaz. It says he became more and more idolatrous. When Asa, who was one of the good kings, was afraid and felt threatened, he reached out to someone else instead of trusting the Lord. There are moments like this where our idols will be revealed. As followers of Jesus, we are still tempted constantly to trust something or someone other than Jesus. One way it shows up is in what we get angry about. Ralph talked about this earlier in our gathering today. It fits perfectly with where things are going today. What do you get irrationally angry about? He's like, dude, it is not irrational. I have a good reason, right? (laughs) And we do, right? We feel so justified. I mean, if you really knew what they did, that's why my face is so red. That's why I'm so upset. That's why I'm yelling. That's why I'm... And then, as we were exhorted earlier, when we remember... What's true? What's right? What's the end of my story? Christ. He is the beginning and the end of all our stories if we are in him. So when we're longing for peace and rest, if I can just get this fixed, everything will be fine. I'm sure none of you ever feel that way. Certainly I don't. I would say at least not so far today, but that's not even true either. When we want peace and rest, we often end up turning away from the only source of peace and rest, thinking we can make it happen on our own. And again, when we're in our right mind and it's Sunday, we're like, that's ridiculous. But we're so often not in our right mind, and it's not Sunday, so we must fight. We try to make things work our own way. We think things like, I know the Bible says this, but here's why my situation is unique and that it can't apply to me in this moment. Yeah, however you'd answer that question, as long as I have that, everything will be okay. That's your God. That's what you're trusting in. And it might even be a good thing that's fine for you to have, that maybe God wants you to have and that he will give you. But the question is, is Jesus enough? Again, we would answer, of course he is. But in those moments, is Jesus enough for you? Because God has given us Jesus, we can count on him to give us, along with him, everything we truly need. So we must be ready, even as followers of Jesus, to repent and to believe. Even in our old age, we can turn our hearts away. We can trust what we feel like we have gained, our own strength, our own wealth, our own prosperity, our own peace and freedom and security. But we prevail through the Lord's strength, and we must trust him all the way to the end. We must repent and believe. We must embrace the commission of our Lord to call others to repent and believe, and we must keep our eyes on the Lord. When we see him for who he is, we will be at rest. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. 
Thank you that you grant mercy to those who humbly turn from their sin and trust in you. Would you help us as we walk through this week, as we face difficulties, as we face obstacles, as we're afraid of speaking up for you, as we are frustrated by the brokenness of this world and are tempted to turn to our own resources or to other people before we turn to you, would you help us to repent? Would you help us to see that for the foolishness that it is and to turn again and trust you and look to you and then roll our sleeves up and get to work for your glory? Oh God, would you do that in us by your spirit? Would you help us to carry the message of this book of sin, of judgment, but then of hope ultimately through our King Jesus with us through the brokenness we face in our own hearts, in our own homes, on our blocks, at our jobs, in all the spheres of life. Would you meet with us? Would you lead us? Would you care for us this week? In Jesus' name, amen.